the Double Coverage Dynasty Podcast with your hosts, Daniel and Micah Simpkins. Welcome back to the Double Coverage Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Simpkins, and unfortunately, my co-host, Micah Simpkins, isn't with us today. He's out doing a job interview in Utah, of all things. But uh, we do have a great guest today, thankfully. Uh, We have Adam Harstad, who's a fellow football guy and uh, a good friend of mine. Adam, how are you, man? Pretty good, Daniel. How about yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. I've uh, just had my my first child, so... uh, I'm really uh, struggling with sleep, but other than that, everything's been great. It's just been. A- I like how you lead with with uh, my first child. I think that just creates expectations that like the second and the third are are just looming over the horizon now. <laughs> well, if it were up to my wife, that would definitely be true. Um, <laughs> she she definitely has baby fever after after this one. So. Uh, but yeah, give her a couple of weeks. Yeah, definitely need to need to give her some time on that for for sure. So, well, um, we'll, we'll jump right in. The first thing I want to do today is we have a segment here called Chat of the Week. It's time for Chat Bro Show. You know, a bro. Chat of the Week. By the way, bro, I always take my pants off to play games, so I hope that's and basically, you pick someone in the NFL who's made you know, a bro move um, or, or done something exceptionally dumb and call them out for it. So that's the first question I want to ask you, Adam, is who would be your nomination for Chat of the Week? Well, I think with uh, the Le'Veon Bell saga finally coming to a close, I think we have to look to that for our Chat of the Week. And uh, obviously, you know, I think there's only one right choice here. And that would be every internet expert who thinks they know better than Le'Veon Bell. What is best <laughs> for Le'Veon Bell? Uh, this it it sets my teeth on edge so much. And I've had this rant about Josh Gordon that like people get to decide for themselves what they want to do, and that's okay. They get to have their own value judgments. And I'm seeing this pervasive thought on Twitter um, that I think is actually you know kind of a little bit gross. That you know Le'Veon Bell is like some innocent naif and he's been deluded by his agent who who's just looking to um, make a name for himself and it's like you know isn't it possible that Le'Veon Bell knows exactly what he's doing and the agent is carrying out his wishes faithfully you know why do we have to assume that that every player who does something that we wouldn't do um, is an idiot or is ignorant Um, I think it's just kind of a gross stereotype so I say let Le'Veon Bell decide what matters to Le'Veon Bell. Uh, yeah, the holdout probably is going to cost him in career lifetime earnings, but he got to take a gap here. It, you know, he gets to play for an organization that actually wants him there, which a lot of times that's more valuable than money, especially when no matter what, he's going to end his NFL career with tens of millions of dollars. So I say just let him decide what he wants to do and stop trying to decide for him. Right. And I think you bring out a really good point that, you know, with Twitter analysis, we're looking at things, you know, from a very linear perspective of does it make sense from a money standpoint? Does it make sense from a loyalty standpoint? But there's so many other factors to this decision that I think, you know, and, and some of that we're not privy to. It's it's things that may be going on inside of him and, and things that, you know, may 
um, be driving him. And we also aren't privy to all the conversations that have been had between the team and Le'Veon Bell. So there may be, you know, a little bit of bad blood about some of the ways that they treated him. And, you know, I, I think most of us could understand if, you know, we thought we weren't valued somewhere, even if the money was right, uh, we, we may not want to work there. You know, we, we may value, um, you know, getting that pat on the back, or we may value, you know, the recognition of a, a job well done that we aren't getting. So yeah, there, there's a lot there. And I think you're, you're right. I think we need to be careful about what we say and, um, we, we need to be, uh, cognizant that sometimes people aren't purely motivated out of money. So that's a good point. Um, I'm going to choose Matt Patricia for mine. Um, and you know, it's not really so much the content of what he said that I want to pick on. Um, I I think it's more just the way that he said it, you know, look, you're, you're going to have tough questions from the media. Uh, they get paid to generate discussion and write and video things that people want to read and watch. I mean, we understand that Adam, because we, we do that at football guys. And, um, as a head coach, I think that's part of your job responsibilities. You, you just have to know that, um, you know, you're accountable to your fan base and they get their information from the sports journalist. And those fans are going to be influenced by what the media tells them. So I think it's in your best interest as a head coach to treat the media with some respect and dignity and um, try to f- form a strong working relationship with them instead of, you know, being adversarial. What, what do you think about that, Adam? Am I off base there? Yeah, I think a lot of coaches get into this mindset that, you know, their job is football and only football. Um, and they lose sight of the fact that, you know, football is not this platonic ideal sport that exists only in theory. It's it's an entertainment product. And, and part of football is being packaged and sold as an entertainment product. And I think there's a lot of coaches who resent that. But honestly, that's what it is. You know, you can't you can't make it be something that it's not just because you wish it was. Um, so yeah, I think coaches definitely need to get with that, be aware of that, stop fighting that. And it might not be the most fun part of their job, but I've never had a job where every part was the most fun part. That seems like an impossibility. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's part of a larger life lesson that, you know, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in and no matter who you're dealing with, if you will treat them with respect and dignity, usually that's going to work out in your, your favor. And, um, you know, even, even people that are in your job that are there, um, to maybe be adversarial. For example, in my, my job, I have auditors. I have people that come in and they look at my work and they make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and you know, I can have one or two added about that. I can, you know, be upset with them and their critiques and everything that they're saying to me, or I can decide, okay, well, I'm going to take what they, they give me and I'm going to be better. I'm going to do better. And if I did something wrong, I'm okay with that. I I just need to correct that and move on. So, um, you know, I I know it's maybe a little bit different dynamic going on with a head coach and reporters because they're not necessarily directly accountable to reporters. But at the same time, just, you know, be be chill, be nice. And even when they ask the hard questions, you just have to realize that's part of their job and um, just just kind of go with the flow. I I wish he had handled things a little bit differently in the last um, two instances, last two brushes he's had with the media. I think it's going to really um, 
be a problem for him while he's there. <laughs> well, Adam, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I, I really value your ability to take data and tell a story. Uh, you do a great job of that. It's your, your stories are always compelling. They're interesting. And there's something that quite frankly sets you apart from a lot of people in the industry. And um, I wanted to ask, do you have any stories that uh, have come from this season that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, yeah, actually my favorite story going on, it's, it's got one of my favorite characteristics in that um I was right, and that, that I always enjoy stories where I'm right. Um, I have a lot of them where I'm wrong. I share those too, but here's one where I was right. So um, four years ago, as you know, you, you've been playing Dynasty long enough. You know that four years ago was the death of the running back. You know, the only way to build teams was around wide receivers. <laughs> only chumps bought running back. It was um, kind of this, this very militaristic mindset, um, and it bore out in uh, startup ADP data. Um, I think four years ago today, there was one running back in the top 12 of ADP. It was Le'Veon Bell. Um, and I wrote a piece um, actually in October of 2013 saying, like, look, I know running back value is really low right now. Um, part of that's because running backs are really old right now. And if you look at the top 36 running backs by fantasy points and you weight their age by their production, um, the average age is 26.4 years old, which is really exceptionally old for the position, which tells me the problem isn't that running back scoring is down because it wasn't. It, it tells me that running backs were just getting old. And why are they getting old? Because we don't have enough young talent coming into the league. Um, and so the old talent from years and years past is sticking around. And you look at it from 2009 to 2012, the top running backs to enter the league were LaShawn McCoy, Arian Foster, DeMarco Murray, who are great. And then... Number four is um, Mark Ingram, maybe, Ryan Matthews, Doug Martin, Lamar Miller, C.J. Spiller. Um, and then you're down to no Sean Moreno. So there just were not good running backs entering the league. So, of course, nobody was drafting running backs high. This, this isn't some structural change. This isn't some revealed wisdom that, oh, wide receivers are the way to build. It's don't draft crappy running backs. And all the league's been producing are crappy running backs. Yeah. And since I wrote that, um, I, we've seen the trend completely reversed. Uh, as of today, the average age of the top 36 running backs is 24.7. It's like two years younger. Um, there are, in the last round of startup mocks over at Dynasty League Football, there were seven running backs in the top 12. Um, from 2014 we got to 2017, we got Todd Gurley, Zeke Elliott, Melvin Gordon, David Johnson, Kareem Hunt, Alvin Kamara, Devontae Freeman, Christian McCaffrey, Joe Mixon, James Conner. Leonard Fournette, Dalvin Cook, Aaron Jones, Jordan Howard, Carlos Hyde. Um, and that's not even counting 2013, which gave us Le'Veon Bell, or 2018, which is Saquon Barkley. Um, so, you know, the lesson is a lot of times we think of things as structural trends. You know, the, the league's moving away from the run. The league's moving towards the pass. You better build around wide receivers. But I think at the end of the day, almost everything boils down to incoming talent. And if there's talented players coming in at a position – doesn't matter what that position is, wide receiver, running back, whatever, draft that position, draft the good players um, and, and worry a little bit less about, you know, the overall position trends. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on most of that. I, I think that you really have the task as a dynasty owner of 
making sure that you evaluate really well when you have an incoming class because it can kind of tell you what the class trends are going to be. Um, if you like to look ahead and do Devi or things like that, those, those are also helpful to some degree. I mean, things change a lot between, you know, a Debbie draft and, um, you know, a dynasty rookie draft, but it does kind of give you a sense of maybe what an upcoming class might look like a little bit. And, um, you can project out, you know, maybe, maybe two years, maybe three years and kind of get a sense of what positions are, are going to be, um, you know, stronger and what positions are going to be weaker. And yeah, I think that that's good. And, and you can, you can leverage that if, if you have people that have that militaristic view of running backs and and them not mattering, um, you know, the, you can kind of zig where they're, where they're zagging and, and say, okay, well, um, you know, if that's the case, then I'm going to collect some running backs during this time where you're, you're devaluing them. Um, and then when things swing back around, um, you're, you're the one who's, uh, got the upper hand. So I, I like that, that, uh, piece of advice. Anything else you wanted to add there? I think that's it. Uh, you know, get good players and, and people just underrate, you know, and I, I like to consider myself a student of league history and, and there are long-term structural trends for sure. The league is trending more towards the past. Um, but I think people underrate, first of all, how much there is in terms of short-term fluctuations in those trends. And second, um, what kind of le- what kind of things lead to those fluctuations? Because I, I don't think most people would think of incoming class strength from 2009 to 2012 as something that's driving this trend um, when we're in, in reality. I think that's all of it. I think that explained 100% of the trend away from running backs. Yeah, and you had the breakout of Odell Beckham Jr. and Mike Evans, and I realized, yeah. uh, you know, immediately when that was happening that, oh, man, this is going to push receiver value, you know, up. And even the incoming class that was net the year after, um, I think people, in self-included, were a little bit – um, higher on wide receivers because, um, you know, we had just seen, uh, you know, some great performances and there was a little bit of that recency bias. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really good observation, Adam. Um, you know, talking about dynasty teams, this is the time of year we usually know if our teams are heading to the playoffs or if they're about to pick high in the next rookie draft, um, can you run through what you're doing with some of your contending and rebuilding squads right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, if I'm in a league where I'm rebuilding and there's a trade trade deadline, um, I'm lobbying really hard right now to get rid of the trade deadline. And if I'm in a league where I'm contending and there's a trade deadline, I'm lobbying really hard right now to get rid of the trade deadline because I feel like trade deadlines are the worst thing in dynasty and they do a, a real disservice to both rebuilders and contenders. Um, cause I really feel like this yep. is the peak time for rebuilding teams to get maximum value on their aging assets. You know, five weeks ago, somebody wasn't going to necessarily want to commit a lot of resources to, to buy an aging receiver who could help the team cause they weren't sure they were going to make the playoffs. But now with the playoffs just a couple weeks away, maybe you've got a contending team who's looking at that number three wide receiver position and, um, might be more willing to pay up for, you know, a short-term rental of somebody like Larry Fitzgerald. Um, so this is really the time when rebuilding teams 
can rebuild. And if you have a have an early enough trade deadline, you're just you're kneecapping their ability to do that. Um, so I would I would lobby hard, no matter whether I was rebuilding or contending. I'm I'm you know hardcore. I don't think there should be any trade deadline at all. I've had opponents make trades the week before I faced them in the playoffs to improve their starting lineup. And I'm not mad about that. I could have made that trade too if I wanted. If I wanted to sacrifice future production for a one-week bump, I'm free to make that choice. Um, and then absent, you know, if there is a trade deadline, there's obviously not anything you can do about that now. Um, I think it's really just a question, if you're rebuilding, of of being um, very strict and matter-of-fact about what players on your team are going to help your team next year. Uh, first of all, I would cut defenses. I mean, keep one because I think you should continue trying to compete. I, I, I don't, I think it's a Bush league move to just take a zero at the defense position to roster an extra um, prospect. But as soon as the playoffs start, absolutely cut your last defense. No need to carry a defense over. I mean, you look at Jacksonville last year, just defensive performance doesn't really carry over year to year. So cut your defenses. If you have an aging, yeah, in a league that we're both in. Oh, I'm sorry. The, in a league we're both in, we just saw the Jacksonville defense hit the yeah. waiver wire because they just aren't performing like they were last year. Yeah, deservedly so. I don't think they've earned the right to to be in an auto hold anymore. Um, and then I think look at your aging stars. Um, someone like Frank Gore. You know, he might stick around next year, but there's if you're rebuilding, there's there's really not a great chance he's going to contribute to that rebuild. And if you can't trade him, you know, I would I would just cut him and I'd add a prospect. And if your league gets mad about that, tell him it's their fault for having a trade deadline. You know, if Tony Gonzalez, when he's announced he's going to retire after the year, if you're eliminated from the playoffs, cut him. And if somebody's mad that somebody's getting somebody else is getting a top five tight end off of waivers, you know what can you do about it? There's, there's a trade deadline. I, I don't think you should be forced to roster players who don't help your team compete at a time when your team can compete just to avoid hurting somebody else's feelings. Um, so yeah, I think if you're a rebuilder, seriously take a look at, ignore the names, ask yourself, when will I be competitive? And will this player be contributing to that? And can I get anything for this player? And then if not, cut them loose and add somebody where the answer is, is maybe or, or, or whatever. Um, and if you're contending, um, one thing I like doing is I, I like uh, checking the waiver wire for defenses with really good matchups in weeks 14, 15, and 16. Uh, the New England Patriots hit the waiver wire a lot this last week, and I grabbed them in all the leagues because they're playing the Buffalo Bills at home in week 16. Maybe it's a little premature to be looking forward to the championship game, but I would not mind having the Patriots playing the Bills at home if I do make it that far. Um, so if you have the space, I, I, I like stashing defenses ahead of time just for that little bit of an edge. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of looking ahead. And I think as a dynasty owner, that's one of your main tasks is to look ahead um, and at, at all scenarios and that includes, you know, the playoffs, obviously, but also if you're not um, contending, if you're not in the playoff picture for whatever reason, then I think you do have to look ahead and, like you said, cut cut the defenses and stash an extra player when you hit the playoffs. You know, be thinking about who you want to be putting on the back end of your bench when you get rid of the, the guys that you uh, were holding to try to um, win this year. 
Um, it, it really is important to to be proactive and, and look ahead. And I'm with you on the trade deadline stuff. I, I hate it. Um, I, I really believe in year-round trading um, in, in Dynasty Leagues. And surprisingly, all my Dynasty Leagues do have a trade deadline. I've, I've got one that has a really late deadline. It's like right before the playoffs, like week 13, but my other ones are like week 10 or, or so. And I, I, I mean, I hate it because, you know, as a contender, what happens too is sometimes you trade for a player um, and then, you know, you, you mortgage the future and then they get hurt and then it burns you. And then you don't want to trade <laughs> before the deadline anymore. And it just makes trading more difficult in general. And um, I, I think I like to see, you know, trades happen freely in dynasty league. So that's part of the appeal of a dynasty league is making those deals. And, um, you know, for me, that that's a big staple of how I play is, is to, to trade a lot. Um, it, it works for me as an owner. It may not work for everyone else, but, um, I make a lot of deals and that's kind of how I take a, a bad team or an orphan that, um, I, I've taken over and that's how I turn it into the team that I want it to be. Um, and then I maintain with trades. I try to be a perennial contender through through trading. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I, I think the biggest objection to trade deadlines, um, and this is what happened in my oldest league. I, I started it up with no deadline, and then, like I said, some guy made a trade the week before he played me, which I was completely fine with. And he said, you know, I think this is just gross that I'm allowed to trade in the playoffs. And I'm like, I've got no problem with it. I'm facing you. I, you know, you make your move. You shoot your shot. Um, but then they put it to a vote and everybody in the league wanted a trade deadline. And so I said, okay, fine, we'll do no trading during the playoffs. But, you know, other than that, right before they kick off, it's open. And then right after the playoffs are done, it's open. Um, but I think the biggest criticism is that having trades that late in the season, um, or, or not having trades that late in the season rewards teams that have built depth. And I think that's kind of a crock because, what are you trading? If you trade for starters to replace, what are you trading? You're trading away your depth. You know, having no trade deadline allows teams with depth in the wrong place to shift it over to starters in the right place. You know, if you're if you're deep everywhere and you suffer two injuries at running back, like what are you supposed to be three deep at running back? And you know, it, it, it without a trade deadline, you've kind of got to guess where the injuries and the problems will occur ahead of time. But with no trade deadline, you can. You can just stack depth in general and understand that if something comes along, you can shift things around, you can move things around, you can make it work, but you need the depth in the first place to make the trades. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, man, I just, I, I'm thinking about this right now. And this year in two leagues where I did make trades uh, right at the deadline, um, I traded in one of the, the league that we're in together. Um, I acquired Adam Thielen. And then find out that you know, his ankle sore. I don't. I don't think it's going to prevent him from playing, but I'm. I'm a little worried about it. And then in the other league, I traded for Levante David, who promptly injured his ankle. So <laughs> having that early deadline kind of hurt me a little bit in in both both situations. Um, but uh, and, and it's not going to stop me from trading in the future because I understand it. But I could see how uh, another owner might. Uh, clam up and say, okay, well, this n- didn't work out for me two times in a row, so I'm just not going to do it at the deadline anymore. So, <laughs> oh, me. Well, yeah, Which, that- honestly, I don't think is, is the worst reaction. I think people 
fall too in love with the the quote unquote win now trade where they're sacrificing overall total value to increase their chances in the short term. I think they overrate how much it increases their chances in the short term and they underrate how much they're going to regret sacrificing that long-term value. Um, I think if you can make an even trade that increases your chances, you know, if you're rebalancing your team, if you're trading a good running back for a comparably good wide receiver, because you're deep at running back and need wide receiver, that's awesome. But if you're, if you're trading a quality prospect for a short-term rental, um, I think that's something you're probably more likely to regret um, than not. Yeah, that's a good point too, is what, what type of trade are you making here? We've been kind of assuming that as we talked about this, that it's, you know, doing some deal where we're trading away, you know, something like, oh, I guess off the top of my head, something like DJ Moore for, you know, maybe a wide receiver who's, who's older, um, who's, um, maybe, you know, producing right now, but in the next two years, you could see them falling off the cliff. No names come to mind at the moment. It's too early in the morning and I haven't had enough coffee. (laughs) But at at any rate, um, yeah, I mean, if you can make a balanced trade right before the deadline and and you feel that even if it doesn't work out and you don't win the championship that, you know, hey, I haven't, you know, messed up my team here by, by making this trade. That's the, that's the best type of trade you can, you can make right at the deadline. And I do definitely, um, as an owner, try to do those types of deals where, um, I'm making a deal that I'm not going to regret long-term, but at the same time, it might still give me a short-term bump in, in some respects. Good stuff, Adam. Um, I wanted to end the show kind of on a different note and we, we do that with the show is we talk about things other than, than football a little bit. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about parenting. It's on my mind, obviously, uh, with, with a new baby girl here. So, um, you know, you and I have talked about it a lot when we've been together on car rides and things like that. And, um, I wanted you to just take a minute to riff and tell our listeners who have children on the way what they're in for. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people get freaked out about you being a parent because you hear so much about, you know, how it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And I, I would qualify that and I would say parenting is hard, but it's not difficult. You know, it's, yes, it's going to be a time sink. It's going to be very effortful. Um, you will devote more time to that child than you've devoted to maybe anything other than possibly the exception of, of pursuing your career. Um, so in that respect, it, it, it's, it's a hard thing. There's, there's a lot of effort required, but you know, it's not rocket science. It, it, if I always say if, if raising kids was really this hard, like think about some of the people, you know, who you are parents, like the human race would have died out a long time ago. Babies are pretty resilient. They're, they're pretty hard to mess up. And, and there's a lot of, of science on this. Um, you know, for instance, we live in the safest time in human history. If, if we had the, the mortality rate of five-year-olds, you know, the mortality rate of kids when they're five years old, if we had that same mortality rate through our entire lives, average life expectancy would be about 5,000 years. Because oh, wow. kids, you know, <laughs> kids like, things happening to kids, but there's never been a safer time in human history to be a kid. Um, the science, there's a lot of twin studies that show you look at twins who are adopted by different families and you look at the differences in their outcomes and you see how much is nature and how much is nurture. 
And um, they consistently find that there's a lot of things you can do to mess up a kid, but there are things like don't feed the kid or, you know, abuse the kid or like lock the kid in the closet for weeks at a time. And so just don't do those things. And provided you, you clear that bar where you're, you're, you're not locking your kid in the closet for weeks at a time, there's really very little you do that actually impacts long-term life outcomes. The, the analogy I've heard is that kids are like Tupperware. Like if you put enough pressure, if you apply enough pressure, you can shape it into whatever shape you want. But then as soon as you're done and you let go, they're just going to snap back into their original shape. And some people find that really disheartening that like you can't make your kid into whatever you want your kid to be. But I find it kind of freeing because then like, hey, I don't have to devote all this effort into making my kid whatever I want him to be because he's just going to be what he's going to be. You know, it's, it's not, there's, my job is basically not to screw it up, not to kill him, which like I said, based on, on life expectancy that you're probably not. Um, the, the biggest danger for kids is when they become teenagers and they start all this aggressive risk-taking behaviors and then they get behind a wheel of a car. But if you're just having a kid today, odds are we're going to have self-driving cars by the time they're 16. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, another big thing is, is trying to get your kid into the top prestigious schools like Harvard. But, um, and, and Harvard, kids who go to Harvard definitely do have better life outcomes than kids who don't. But that's mostly selection bias. Studies have looked at the kids who just barely make it into Harvard and the kids who just barely miss the cutoff. And they find no difference in long-term life outcomes. Harvard's not improving your kids' chances any. You don't need to, to lose your mind trying to get them in there. Whatever school they're going to get into will be fine. Um, whatever path they choose to take, they'll be fine. So don't abuse them. Make sure you feed them regularly. Don't lock them in closets. Um, and, uh, try and keep them alive to 18 and you've succeeded as a parent. And it's, it's not, you know, it, there's a lot of effort involved, but it's really not that difficult. Um, and you know, try and make their life happy. Don't make their life miserable. Don't kill them. Don't let them make your life miserable. <laughs> I like that advice. And I love what you said about kids being resilient. They really are. And part of that is neuroplasticity. You know, they um, have the ability to learn and to grow and to change, you know, at a rate that maybe older folks don't necessarily have, um, you know, older folks can change too. It just, it's a slower process and um, it's not as easy, but with, with kids, yeah, they, they are resilient creatures. And yeah, like you said, it takes a lot of intentional um, things to mess up a child. You have to really be trying. And so the anxiety that we sometimes have over parenting and uh, taking care of, of kids, you know, it's really unnecessary. It's, it's borrowing trouble and, and, you know, making, making worry where maybe it doesn't need to be there. So I, I love that advice, Adam. And um, I'm definitely a new parent. I've got a lot to learn and, and there are definitely some uh, things that I think you're way ahead of me on because you're a little bit further down the, the road in the parenting journey. But um, I, I think that's, that's reassuring for me to hear that, you know, Hey, as long as you're, you're giving it your best effort and you're intentionally not trying to mess your kid up, there, there's, little you can do to, that's going to actually mess right. up. So. Which, you know, and sometimes that's not the most comforting thing. Your kid's going to be what your kid's going to be. Sometimes, you know, that uh, you don't have a whole lot of control over that. You, they, you might not have chosen that direction for them, but that's kind of the fun of it too. You know, you, you, you don't get to decide what your kid is. You get to find out what your kid is. 
Yeah, yeah, it is a fun process to <clears throat> to see what they will become, and um, yeah, that, that's part of the journey too. Is just being excited for um, you know the great things that they'll end up doing, and it, and sometimes the not so great things that they'll that they'll, in your opinion, that they'll end up doing. Um, it's it's part of living life and finding out who you are, and you know, making mistakes is part of the process. And as parents, we have to just, you know, kind of step back and, and not, you know, not hover, not be helicopter parents, but, but be there, be supportive and, and, uh, you know, be a guide as Joe Bryant likes to say, be a guide. If you, if you can just be there and, and be the guide and, um, you know, help them along the way, instead of pushing them, you know, kicking and screaming, then I, I think that's a better, better parenting style. That's going to put a lot less stress on you and your child. So, uh, well, Adam, thank you again for being here today. We really appreciate you being on the show. And um, I also just wanted to let listeners know that they can follow you on Twitter at Adam Harstad. And uh, Adam, is there anything else that you would like to promote before we sign off for today? Nope. Just, you know, live life, let people live their life, everybody be happy, you know, and there's seldom any trouble that you don't go looking for. <laughs> very true. Very true. Well, thank you again, Adam. And uh, for all our listeners here, we're, we're really thankful that, that you've tuned in and uh, really appreciate you uh, giving us your time and attention. We know that that's one of the most valuable things that you have. And uh, we hope that you have a great rest of the day. Until next time, my friend.